from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Tom Price. Tom grew up in Southern California. Tom's initial life goal was to become a lawyer, but circumstances prevented him from pursuing that career. Instead, he found himself in Australia where he studied music and became quite successful as a music producer there. Tom moved back to the U.S. in the late 80s. I started the interview by asking Tom where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in California. We lived in a house on the beach in Malibu, California, and I lived there until the age of 15, until my family moved to a country called Ceylon at that time, now Sri Lanka. Growing up in Malibu, California, of course, Malibu at the time I grew up, which was in the 60s, it was mainly a community for the film industry. And so most of the people that, were, that I went to school with, you know, elementary school and, and middle school and high school, were ch- children of people in the entertainment, primarily the film industry, quite well-to-do. I also accompanied my father on journeys overseas, during the early part of my life, I spent a year in Egypt where my father was making a movie, and also my father went to India during that period of time, and that's the reason we went to Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, in 1971. And I guess the, the main thing you could say is that when you're young and, and you travel quite a bit, like I went to school in Cairo for one year, we had to leave Cairo suddenly, and when I say suddenly, I mean on, on one minute's notice because a war broke out between Egypt and, and Israel, and when, whenever that was, 66, 67, or whatever. And so you gradually learn fairly quickly, you know, that the world is not a safe place. And, of course, when we went to Sri Lanka in 1971, we ended up getting caught in a revolution. <laughs> At that time, there was a, a revolution broke out in 1971 in Ceylon, And this was already a very turbulent time in Southeast Asia because America was viewed as, I don't know, like the devil or something in Southeast Asia in 1971 because of the Vietnam War and the bombing of Laos and Cambodia and so on that was going on at that time. So as soon as we arrived in that country, we realized how much Americans were hated. And I was only 15 years old. And and then when the war broke out there, it... It was an emergency government, and um, uh, they put both me and my father in jail. I ended up, you know, as a 15-year-old in jail in a foreign country, and my father ended up in jail, and they killed my father ultimately. He died in jail. So the early part of my life was mixed between, you know, living in an affluent area in in California, but traveling to countries where you could really see the, the turmoil in the world, and ultimately that turmoil engulfed our family. When I was released from jail, I went to Australia and lived there for 18 years before returning to the United States. Now, what did your father do in the movie industry? During the time I was alive, he was a producer. But in his earlier life, you know, before I was born in the, in the 30s and 40s, he was an actor, and he acted in maybe 50 or 60 different movies. And not a well-known name, but if you saw him in, a, in an old movie, you'd say, oh, I recognize that face, you know because you recognize a lot of people that weren't big stars. So my father was an actor first and then a producer. Did you ever find out what happened to your father? How, he, how is it that he died in prison? Uh, we were both held in prison and interrogated brutally for, for gem smuggling, which was the uh, investigation that was going on. But the government had freedom to hold whoever they wanted because of the war that was going on. So they didn't have to charge anybody with anything. Uh, but that was the interrogation process of going on with us. My father was never charged with anything or sentenced with anything. He was just held for 18 months. And, and at the very end of it, they handed the body, the dead body, to the U.S. government, 
who then contacted us. We were waiting in Australia at that time and said, we've uh, been given the dead body of your your father. They did an autopsy, but it was inconclusive. They said he'd had a stroke and various other conditions that led ultimately to his death. And what was your experience in prison? It's difficult to explain. I mean, you know, if, if you imagine... We lived in a, in a mansion on the beach in Malibu, and I went to Santa Monica High School. To go from that to immediately being in a prison in a country that they hate Americans, and you're only 15 years old, it's not even... It would be surreal to try and dis- describe it. I, it. I can't imagine. Of course, the only thing I could say is that upon coming out of the prison and going to Australia, within a week I had become a behind. Uh, my mother became a Baha'i when I was nine years old, and I was 15, but I hadn't joined the Baha'i faith, so it definitely uh, had a good effect in the long term. But in the short term, it's almost impossible. If I think about it now, it's almost like thinking about a different person, mm-hmm. because uh, it's everything is taken from you. And, of course, everything was taken from me anyway, because when my father passed away, so did my ability to go to university and, you know, things of that nature, because, you know, I was dependent on my father, you know, for the plans that I had in life. And you said you were subjected to physical torture? Physical torture, no, but extreme uh, interrogation uh, every day for three weeks. They, they, they interrogate you in such a way that it seems like torture, because they interrogate you for very long periods of time, and no matter what you say, they tell you that you're lying, and they yell and scream at you, and, and, and it wouldn't matter what you say. They, they adopt the posture that you're lying, and they force you to say things, and then in the end, you gradually learn what to say and what not to say because they're trying to get evidence and information on other individuals that you have no knowledge of, but they're trying to get it. So after a while, you start saying things that aren't true. Well, they're not necessarily not true, but, but that you don't know about just because you realize that if you say that, they'll stop. And so gradually they manipulate you. They don't realize it until you you say, well, yeah, maybe he did do this or he did do that because, you know, you just want to say things that they want to know. In the end, you know, they they then typed up this huge, long testimony. I think it was like 10 or 12 pages long type, single-space typed, and then read it out to me and said, this is your testimony, and asked me to sign it. And I remember as they read it, I said, I don't know a word of this. <laughs> I don't know the names. I don't know the places. I don't know, but they, but they got me to sign it because they were trying to get what particular evidence they wanted to get certain people in a gem smuggling operation. So I learned more from them than they learned anything from me during the thing because I was a 15-year-old kid, and how was I supposed to know anything? My guess is that my father also they got information from, but perhaps he knew more, although he was not involved, and they never said he was involved in the gem smuggling. The, the important thing to remember is that the U.S. was so hated in Southeast Asia that, it, that even several months, you know, I got off the airplane there, and university-age kids would, would surround me and yell and scream at me at America for being, you know, the devil and the this and the that and this and that. You I mean, the, the degree of hatred in Southeast Asia for America at that time has not been repeated even in in more recent years, in my opinion. When I got in jail, the first thing that happened was that a letter was sent from the U.S. government demanding the release of me and my father, and the U.S. Embassy, who was finally allowed to visit me in jail, showed me the letter, and I took one look at the letter, and I just put my hands in my head and said, why why don't they just sign my death warrant? Because the letter was signed and written in a very imperious manner by the Secretary of the State of the United States. That stage was Rogers, who was just like the devil. I mean, you could imagine if, if someone had been caught in, say, Iraq during the Iraq, recent Iraq war and someone got captured by Iraqis, and then there was a letter sent from, say, Donald Rumsfeld or someone like that saying, I, I absolutely demand this release of this prisoner. You, you, it makes it worse, not better, to, for such a letter to be sent. And I, even as a 15-year-old kid, I realized that, uh, why did they do this? You know, would they want to kill me? There was no help that one could get being an American overseas while America was bombing the countries in the region where we was. And you know that Sri Lanka is just on the other side of the, the ocean there, you know, from Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam. 
so I knew that I was alone and that the government couldn't help me. Fortunately, they did release me after three weeks. We only went to Australia because it was the closest country that we could wait to get our father out. We didn't want to go back home. And ironically, because we waited so long, I was released, I think, in, I don't know, the, the late summer, early fall, and we waited until March. Wow. So it was like five or six more months after that that we waited, and then finally uh, my father passed away. Um, we decided to remain in Australia a little longer, and that remaining in Australia then ended up being 18 years in my case. And my mother is still there now, today as we speak, some 40 years later, and my sister and so on. They never left Australia. But Australia was really just a place to wait while this, uh, until our father had been released. Now, was your father a Baha'i? My father was not a Baha'i. I told you about a trip that we went to Egypt in, in 66, 67, and it was during that time that my mother was alone with her youngest, with my youngest sister, and pregnant with with a with another child, that remained back in the U.S. And during that time, a very nice, fine Baha'i woman that was in the film business has won several Academy Awards, named Gwen Wakeling, befriended my mother, you know, just because she was alone and 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 her husband was traveling and stuff like that, and became her friend, taught her the Baha'i faith, and when we came back from Egypt. When the war started with Israel, my mother told us about the Baha'i faith, that she had learned about it. And soon thereafter, I can't remember exactly when, but soon thereafter in the late 60s, my mother joined the Baha'i faith. My sisters did and had firesides in the home. So from the age of around 9 or 10 or something like that, my mother had, had been an active Baha'i and having firesides in her home. And my father loved the Baha'i faith. And it was only, you know, four or five years later that we went to Sri Lanka, and I think we were all on a path to becoming Baha'is when all of this happened. So was it a given that at 15 you'd become a Baha'i? No. My two sisters had become Baha'is already, but it wasn't a given, no. What was it that convinced you to, that maybe you should become a Baha'i? Well, when I got to Australia... And I was still 15, but, but it was near, nearly 16 years old. I was still 15. I had just been through all of this, and we still had this period that we were waiting for my father. It was a, it was a period of limbo because, you know, we were, we were going to go back to America as soon as my father was released, and I was going to go to uh, finish high school and then go to college. My plans were to go to USC and become a lawyer and uh my father and grandfather had, had gone to USC. That's where I wanted to go. and I had my whole life planned out. But suddenly now we were just waiting in, a, in a, a country, a foreign country, Australia, for our father to return. And that period, I think it was about nine months, if I remember correctly. It was during that period of nine months that I was in kind of like a limbo stage. The Australian Baha'i community in Sydney, where we were, was very active with the youth. There were a lot of Baha'i youth, and they would... They would meet several times a week. They would get together for some reason or another. And in California, I had all my own friends and all my own life and everything. I, so even if there were Baha'i youth, I didn't know about it because I was doing other things. But here in Australia, we had nobody. And my mother had already been living in Sydney you know, for a while while I was in jail. Cause they, they fled, and they actually fled the country when the war first started. So they'd been there for several months. And the Baha'i community had very much taken in and helped my mother and my sisters and, and everyone that were there. So when I arrived, uh, immediately, you know, I got introduced to the Baha'is and the Baha'i youth, and they were the only friends I had in Australia. So I had basically been taken from one country into another and then into jail and then thrown into a third country, and the third country, the only people I knew were Baha'is. So I don't think it was more than a few days you know, it was certainly not not even weeks that I, you know, signed a declaration card just like you were anybody else that you believed in Baha'u'llah. And I did that. But I did that with a whole lot more knowledge uh, of the Baha'i faith over the time. So I knew what I was getting into. But I loved the Baha'i youth, and they had 30 or 40 of them gathered together. And in those days, they all sang songs with the guitars. You know, everyone would sing 
and and play you know was uh, if you if you remember what 1971 was like you know throughout the world well sydney was just like that and it was my only refuge was the baha'i faith at that time in my life so what did you do after your after you buried your father well we couldn't bury the father because we couldn't go to the country we right. got a message from some baha'is living in in ceylon that they had buried my father and given him the a ceremony where they said Baha'i prayers, and that was very comforting to us. My family decided to remain in Australia when the Australian government granted us a special dispensation that we, we could be citizens or remain in the country as long as we wanted to. We, we, were, wait, we were there on a you know, diplomatic kind of visa, you know, waiting for, for our father to be released, but then they, they went ahead and granted us permanent residency and even citizenship if we so wished and so my mother took that up and my sister took that up and I uh, realized that I could not go back to the United States my father had uh, invested everything he had you know millions of dollars in this is this film that of course didn't get made I couldn't go to USC I couldn't become a lawyer I had to finish one year of high school so I ended up remaining in Australia first to try and support my mother because my mother, believe it or not, had never worked in her life because, uh, you know, the era that she came in and the person that she married. So she couldn't really just support herself. So we worked for a little bit. I was like 16 and my sister was 18 and stuff. Uh, and my younger sister, I think, was probably at that stage 14 or 15. We worked for a little bit and I went to night school to get a high school diploma. And it was quite obvious that I couldn't get into university in Australia doing all the subjects that I wanted to do and get into a law school, which is what I wanted to do. And so as it turns out, um, I had always played, you know, music. I played violin since I was very, very young and so on. And there were various exams that you could take to get into college. So I took actually two different music exams, one on the violin and one on music theory, that I was able to pass quite well. And you needed to have enough subjects to pass in. So I used my musical knowledge. I had never intended to do anything in music in life, you know, as a profession. It was just something that that you that that I did, you know, as a hobby. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer, but I found that it came in handy because I was able to pass the music exams. As a result, I graduated from high school and got into college, but only on a music scholarship. So I said, no problem. I'll just go to college and uh, get in on music, but then I'll transfer to law and I'll do what I wanted to do. But it turned out that that move transferred my career ambitions from law to music. So, you know, within the space of a couple of years, I found myself living in a different country, belonging to a different faith, and now having a different career path and profession than I had intended to, you know, at the age of 15. At what point in your university program did you realize, huh, I think, music is going to be what my ultimate career path is going to be? I got into college, you know, when I was, I think I was around 17. Something unusual had happened. Uh, we were singing in a Baha'i choir in the Baha'i House of Worship in Sydney, and it was conducted by a woman who was very capable and very knowledgeable, and she had conducted the choir from the very beginning of the, of the building of the temple there in 1963, and she surely would have been... Uh, conducting it forever and ever, and I was a singer in the choir. And then something happened in which she and her husband got invited overseas to to take up a position. And so they got ready to do that, and during that period of time that they prepared to do that, there was no one to conduct the choir. And because I was in college my first year, I helped out and kept the choir going, you know, and like just conducted them in, in, in some few songs and so on like that. And that period lasted a couple of months, just an emergency thing that I did. Then after about three months of doing this, because there were a lot of Baha'i youth that used to sing songs and play guitars, and I was involved in that, I invited or encouraged all of them to join the Baha'i Temple Choir, because most of them didn't. So the Temple Choir grew quite large during that period, uh, maybe 30 or 40 people of youth age, and then, uh, finally, the National Assembly uh, saw the choir and saw how big it was and how it had so many youth, and they went ahead and appointed me at the age of 18 to be the conductor of that choir. 
at that stage still, you know, music was just something that I did on the side, but then I decided to take more courses in university in choral conducting, choral arranging, choral composition, I even voice classes and things of that nature. It, it it gave me something to do and it was because I was at university and I had complete access to the music department because I was on a music scholarship doing a music composition course, I was able to then also do the vocal courses as well, even though I had no training. So really, it was because I needed more knowledge to be able to do that work. Ironically, it turned out after about three, three and a half months that the position that the the job that the woman and the husband had that, that was going to relieve her of her duties of the Baha'i Temple Choir, it fell through, and they ended up not moving from Australia. And she didn't really need to vacate her position at all. But during that intervening three months, I had ended up, you know, becoming appointed the conductor of the choir. So she she never got her position back, but it was really a mistake. Something had happened that they thought they had a job that they didn't overseas, but they announced it and prepared to get ready for it, and she left the job. So if, if I look back at and in hindsight, I was first manipulated into using music just as a means of getting into college. Then exactly in my first year, I was appointed to a position where I needed to have more knowledge in choral music, and even that was just an accident. But then I I started studying it. So I think by the end of my second or third year, I was quite interested in choral music and choral arranging and and those kind of things. And, And as a result, I ended up conducting that particular choir in Australia for 14 years. I was a conductor of the Sydney Baha'i Temple Choir, and if you listen to any recordings that I've made of choral music like songs of the ancient beauty or or some of the other ones most of the music from those recordings were was music that i either wrote or arranged or collected during those 14 years in 1984 you know i was uh, one of the conductors of the music at the dedication of the temple in samoa western samoa then in 1986 i was appointed the director of the music for the dedication of the indian temple and then there were various international conferences in which uh, I would do the music. So by the time the late 80s, early 90s, I had done a lot of choral music all over the world for the Baha'i Faith, and, and then I was appointed by the House of Justice to do the choir for the World Congress in 92. So basically, I guess you know, from that period in the early 70s, going to college and studying music and becoming a Baha'i, I just was gradually more and more involved in Baha'i choral music. And that's just because I happened to live in one of the six or seven cities in the world where there was actually a Baha'i temple. And in Baha'i temples, they have choirs, and they need choirs, and they need choirs that will perform every week or, or as frequently as possible, and they're unaccompanied choirs. Mm-hmm. There's not many spots on the wor- in the world, you know, just Wilmette and in near Chicago and, and Frankfurt, Germany, and Kampala, Uganda. I mean, there's only a few places in the world where there's such a need for Baha'i choral music as there would be in a city where there's a temple. And I just happened to be living in one of those cities and happened to uh, be studying music and been the conductor of a choir there. I, w- without that experience, I wouldn't. my whole career path would certainly have been different. Being the Baha'i Temple Choir director in Australia, in Sydney, that was your work? No. Um, uh, although now some choir directors in other parts of the world, they, it is their work. The National Assemblies uh, are able to, to pay them. It wasn't at that time. So, no, that was just a voluntary thing. You know, you did it, you know, you rehearsed, you know, on weeknights or weekends, and then you performed on, you, on Sundays in, in those cases. So it wasn't my work. But, you know, when I graduated from college, I went into music as an arranger, first an arranger, which means that you orchestrate music. And uh, most of the work in Australia in those days was in advertising. And it was a good period for arrangers in those days because it was just slightly before electronic synthesizers and various other things could make a full sound in, in recording cheaply. So usually people still needed a real orchestra, real strings and real brass, and somebody had to write those notes out for the players. So it was a good time. And I also did some music for film during that time and then also ended up producing uh, some pop records. One of them was a singer, 
in Australia by the name of Billy Field, and he ended up having the number one selling record in the country in 1981. 1981, 1982, he was the number one selling artist, and I had produced his records. One was called Bad Habits, and, and there was a few other ones. And, uh, and so I had become quite successful then in the music industry uh, by the mid-1980s on my own, and that's, how I, that's, how, that's what I did for work. And when was it that you moved back to the United States, and why did you? In 1988, I came to the United States, and... I had always intended to come back to the United States. I mean, Australia was basically just a, uh, a little stop-off on the way back to the United States, but it ended up being from 71 to 88, so it was 17, almost 18 years. During the early 80s, uh, we had children. We had four children, but all in the space of a fairly short period of time. I think we had one child in 79, and one in 81, and one in 82, and one in like 85 or something. And so... We had four children under the age of 10, and we were living in Sydney, Australia. And Sydney is like any big city in the world. It's very, very uh, busy and very hectic and very materialistic. And big cities are not a great place to raise a child. In my opinion, they're not. And, and I could see you know, from friends of mine that had children that it was difficult keeping children focused in a big city. It's the same in, in the United States, you know, Los Angeles or New York or whatever. So I had already thought that it would be nice to move children to a more rural environment or, or, or a little bit more peaceful where there wasn't, you know, the drugs and the violence and the materialism of a big city. And I was traveling in the United States, and I noticed that Nashville seemed to fit two problems that I had. One is I wanted to move to a small city, but one I wanted to move to a city where I could continue to work in the music industry. To me, there was only a few cities in the world where you could do that. Sydney was one of them. In the United States, you generally thought of Los Angeles or New York, and in Europe, you thought of London or something like that. So, and I knew that London or, or New York or, or Toronto or, or Los Angeles, all the cities that where I could definitely do more work, they were worse than Sydney as far as being a big city. So I would never move to them. I, I really longed for for a smaller city. Remember when I grew up in California, Malibu was, you know, 20, 30 miles north, and it, we lived on an area that was, you know, like an estate. You know, I, I, I didn't, I've never been attracted much to big cities. So I was traveling, and I visited some friends of mine, some good friends of mine in Nashville in 1986, 87, 88, that period. It was Dash Croft, who was a good friend of mine, had been a good friend of mine for a long time, stayed with him in Nashville and also visited uh, some other Baha'is here that were in the music business, Joey Bogan and a few others that were connected with Seals and Cross. And I said, well, gee, this is great. It's a smaller city, but there's plenty of music business. So I said, let's make the move because this would be something that would be good for me career-wise and good for our children. And I think it worked out in, in both cases. Our children are all grown up now and and they're all uh, good kids, you know, and they've all graduated from college, and, and they got a good education here in the U.S., and they, they didn't have the pressures and stresses that a lot of kids have, you know, growing up in big cities. And at the same time, I was able to continue working in music. Did you ever work with Dash Crofts or Seals and Crofts? I've worked with, with both of them. Um, Jimmy Seals I've written songs with, uh, including several for the World Congress. You know, he and I wrote See the Light of His Glory and, and a few other songs for the World Congress together. And Dash has sung with me on concerts and tours. I think uh, even back in Australia, you know, I organized a, a concert for Seals and Cross even when I was living in Australia. I first met Seals and Cross way back in Malibu when I was 13 or 14 years old because they go back to... Uh, the Southern California period, when my mother was a Baha'i even before I was, we had a big proclamation one year in which the Baha'is have a big event, a public event, and they held it on the beach at our house in Malibu. And all the Baha'is from, from all over the region came. And the opening act, or the big performing act, was this small group called Seals and Cross. And I, I want to say this was like 68, 69, or you know, something way, way back. And that's when I first met them and I got their records. And then later on, I met them at various times in my Baha'i life. 
then uh, Louis Shelton, who was their producer, moved to Australia, and I became his partner in the early 1980s, long before I left there. And then Dash Cross and, and Billy Cross actually lived in Australia for a while, and I did some stuff with them in those years. And so I had become good friends with them and worked with them on and off, mainly in Baha'i concerts and Baha'i tours. And, of course, Dash Cross toured with the Voices of Baha Choir countless times. I don't know how many times, ten times or more. He toured as a soloist. And when we moved to Tennessee, we, we formed the Tennessee Baha'i Choir in 1988, and Dash sang with that choir both as a choir singer and a soloist all during those years. 1992 was when the Baha'is had their second World Congress, the first one being in 1963, I believe, in London. Maybe you could describe for us what your responsibilities were for this World Congress. Basically, it attracted approximately 30 to 40,000 Baha'is from all over the world to come. Originally, I was asked to be the choral director of the what's called the main program of the World Congress. The World Congress had a number of different programs. There were evening programs every night, and as I recall, there were seven different ones each night, and there were four nights, so whatever that is, 28 programs, and they were called the evening programs. And then during the day, there was like a plenary session. There were two hours each day, and there were four days of those. So there was eight hours of programming, and those were viewed very much more like a sacred Thing. And so one person was appointed the music director of the evening programs, and that was uh, behind Canada by the name of Jack Lenz. And then the, for the main program, they had asked me, and my original designation was called choral director. And I think that came from the, uh, uh, the fact that I had, had done just a few years earlier the choral music for the ted- dedication of the temple in India. And I had gathered a very large international choir. We had more than 200 singers at that. And this was the vision that we would we would get singers uh, to perform more in a sacred style for that event, and so that's why I was asked to do it. And it was in early 1991. It was almost two years before the World Congress that I been asked to do this. The first thing I did is I looked at the size and the venue and you know everything, and I said, "There's no need for this to be a choir only. Uh, this choir can be accompanied because it's not in a temple like we were in India." And the choir can be very large because, you know, we, we're going to have tens of thousands of people coming and there will be enough good singers. So I said this should be an orchestra and a choir. And then began a process of about two years in which I had to audition Baha'i instrumental musicians and Baha'i choral singers and listen to them play or sing in those days by tape recorder because they didn't have MP3s. We had over 1,200 people auditioning to become singers in the choir, and just countless, you know, hundreds of people wanted to play in the orchestra. In the end, we selected an orchestra of 92 people, which is a very large symphony orchestra, larger than, than a lot that you see on stage, and uh, 420 singers. So that's, you know, 500 or so, a little over 500 people we had there. You're correct, there were 35,000 people approximately that came to the Baha'i World Congress, and so, so large, in fact, that they, they ended up doing that, those devotional sessions each day, twice each day, with about 17,500 people or something, or a little over 17,000 in each of the two sessions. And we performed with this huge orchestra and huge choir, and we had to write all the music, arrange all the music, or you know, at least take the existing music and, and score it for a big choir and big orchestra in order to perform it. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, but to my knowledge, that's the first time the Baha'is ever really did something on a musical scale that involved, you know, an ensemble of that size. And what were the challenges in getting ready for that? Um, the technology today is much easier to do a thing like that, where where you have a group of people that are not uh, all in one city. You know, a choir in one city, they can rehearse you know, every Thursday night or something like that for a few months, and they can get ready. Uh, in those days, the only way to do it was to record the music 
and record each part, like the alto part would be sung separately and the tenor part and so on, to record all of that and then then mail it to people by normal snail mail in the old days, and then they could listen to it and and learn it because there wouldn't be enough time to learn all of the music in, in the two or three days that was available to us to rehearse. I think we gathered a couple of days before the beginning of the World Congress, but you couldn't, you couldn't economically, you know, get 420 people and 590 people in an orchestra to gather together for more than that. So we had to have the music sent out in advance. They had to listen. The problem with that was that we didn't have all of the music soon enough, and the program was still being worked out even months before the World Congress, and the, the final touches on the program were not really concluded until April, late April, and the, the event was uh, in the fall. So as a result, the majority of all the music was put on us in the last six months. And some of it we were able to get out in a first batch, and then in a second batch uh, we could only, we were composing, you know, pretty late, you know, even a month before the World Congress. And even when you compose music, to score it for a 92-piece symphony orchestra takes time. And then when you score it for the orchestra, the choral parts may alter or change, and so it's difficult. So there were actually a few pieces, I can't remember how many, uh, but there were a few pieces that we actually did have to uh, introduce to the singers just one or two or three days before the event, and they had to learn those. Fortunately, they'd learned plenty of the other material, and we told everyone to bring little Walkmans. You know, in the old days when you had cassette tapes, you'd put a tape in and you'd walk around, and every singer was told to bring those, and when they arrived, they were given their parts, so if they couldn't read music... You saw them walking around the hallways of hotels and up and down and sleeping at night and going to bed, just listening to that music over and over again, learning their parts. And in about three days from the time this group first met, and remember, they came from all over the world. They came from just every imaginable country. They joined together. So they'd never met each other, never seen each other, never sung together. And within three days... We were able to start the opening program of the World Congress. The first day of the World Congress, which was a Monday, was a two-hour program of which more than an hour was music sung by this choir. We, we had an oratorio that was performed on that day, and the oratorio lasted you know, a little over an hour long. And this whole group that had only met together for the first time three days earlier was able to perform that uh, oratorio. From that event and from that experience spawned the voices of Baha? Yes. So that was, nine, that was in the fall, you know, November of, of 92. And uh, almost immediately, people in different parts of the world said, oh, we like that music, we want more of that music. Prior to that, a lot of Baha'i music, or, or I shouldn't say Baha'i music, but music that Baha'is had been doing, had been either in a folk style or a popular style or, or something of that nature. And this was something that they hadn't really heard a lot, you know, a big symphony orchestra with a big choir and so on. And the year before that, or within a year or two before that, the Baha'i community had grown quite rapidly in Russia, because as you know, the, that was the period in which um, the Soviet Union had uh, broken you know, down into the 13 other countries that, that, that were existing at that time. And Russia had a Baha'i National Assembly. They met with the American National Assembly in Haifa, Israel, at a Baha'i International Convention immediately after the World Congress. No, not actually immediately, but in the Rezvan period, which was March-April of 93. And the Russian Baha'is said, we want that World Congress choir to come to Russia because that's what the music we like. We understand big choral music with orchestra, and it's, it's our kind of music. So I was told this by our American National Assembly, and by October of 1993, which was not even a year after the World Congress, we took a group of about 60 people to Russia. And we, uh, we did concerts in Moscow and also in the Ukraine and Kiev and, and, and various other Part. We went to Moldova and a few other countries and came back, and it was spectacularly successful. And the people that I took was just a small group. It was about 60 people that were from that World Congress choir, and I had basically just invited them by sending them uh, uh, letters or emails or phone calling them, and they all came. 
And once we realized that that was possible, uh, we continued to do that. We adopted the name The Voices of Baha, and it's now, if you think from 93 to 2009, it's been 16 years, and I think we've done 14 trips or something in that 16 years. You know, we've, we've gone to Europe on many different occasions, not just to Eastern Europe, which we have done almost all the countries in Eastern Europe at one stage or another. We've done the southern parts of Europe, the Mediterranean, the middle parts, the north parts, and so on. We, we did uh, a tour to Asia, and we went, we went to eight countries, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, Philippines, Taiwan, and so on. We've done tours, of course, in the United States several different times. One time we went on the Mississippi River boat from all the way from Cincinnati to New Orleans and stopped in every city along both the Ohio and Mississippi rivers and gave concerts. We also did bus tours around the U.S. and so on. All in all, I think we've counted some 14 tours and over 40 different countries. And one of the more recent tours we did was to the Caribbean region, we went to all the islands in the Caribbean and, and, and north, northern part of South America, like Venezuela and places like that. And that was very successful. And we're just in the middle of planning a very large uh, choral tour to India, which will take place in June of 2010, in which we're going to go back and sing all of Ravi Shankar's music that was composed for the Indian Temple Dedication. We're going to perform in in the Baha'i House of Worship there in New Delhi, of course, but also in large concert halls in India. So everything that I've described to you now, the last 16 years of concerts in 40 countries that is continuing as we speak you know, into India, all of that derives its impetus from the World Congress and the choir we formed there. So really the, the music of the World Congress or the work of, of it has never stopped for me. Now, you mentioned Ravi Shankar. What is your relationship with Ravi Shankar and the relationship with the Baha'i faith in Ravi Shankar? Ravi Shankar is certainly the most, or at least, if not, not the most, at least one of the, the most cherished and respected musicians in India. And of course, he's a sitar player, but also a very, very accomplished composer and musician and educator and ambassador for Indian music. When they were building the Baha'i Temple in New Delhi, in 1986, or maybe it was in 85 or whatever, when it was nearing completion, they had decided that when they had the big conference to open the Baha'i Temple, they would invite him to perform at it because there was nobody that was more befitting and larger in India. So he was invited to come and see the temple in its construction phase. And in 1985 or whenever that was, uh, the Baha'i Temple looked pretty much like it looked now. It was a huge lotus flower. It's considered a great architectural wonder. It's been written up in almost every architectural journal in the world as one of the great achievements of uh, late 20th century architecture. And it's, it's a spectacular building, and it was even spectacular long before it was opened in 86. And so he came into that building. They toured him through it and then sat him down and uh, I was appointed the music director to coordinate things, but we needed Indian music composed. But we never thought that he would write Indian music for that building. What, what we were inviting him to do was to play at a big concert at the conference, which would take place, you know, in a big stadium near the building. And the reason for that is that in Baha'i temples, we don't have anything but vocal music, unaccompanied vocal music by a choir or soloist, what we call a cappella choirs. So it had never occurred to any of us that he would have anything to do with the music inside that building, but he would come and perform at that big conference. The conference was huge. There was more than 10,000 people that came to it a year later. Well, he went in that building, and because he's such a deeply spiritual man, he came out of it, and he was, he, he, he was even breathing heavy. He said, he said, I have been deeply touched and moved by that building. And so then we asked him, the Baha'is there, the officials, said that we're having a big conference to open this in the December of 1986, and we would like you to play at that conference. And he kind of sighed and said, you know, I do a lot of concerts. 
In fact, he had just returned from doing a concert in Central Park in the United States, which maybe 100,000 people were there. When he says, I've done concerts, he had played at Woodstock and, and all kinds of great events you know, in his career. So when he says, I've done a lot of concerts, he's not, not lying. He says, I've done a lot of concerts, and they don't really interest me. You know, I do them every, you know, all the time. He said, however, if you ask me to play in that building, and he pointed to it because we, we were in a room just where you could see it, you know, it was an office. He said, if you ask me to play in that building, I will be here straight away, and I'll perform in that building. Now, you can imagine the difficulty this was for the Indian Baha'is when he said that, because there's a culture of respect that you don't say anything rude to someone of that stature. And yet he was an instrumentalist asking to play instrumental music, and somebody had to tell him, well, we're sorry, but we're not, you're not allowed to have instrumental music <laughs> in that building. And he had just offered to do it, so somebody had to do it. And everybody looked at each other, you know, who's going to speak up? And, of course, there was no Indian that could because of the, the culture of respect. And, you know, they kissed his feet as he walks in the door, you know. How are you going to tell the, the greatest instrumental mus- musician in all of India that we don't believe in instrumental music? So he set, makes this offer. Everybody is completely um, stunned, and they don't know what to say because we'd asked him to do one thing, and he offered to do something else. And then suddenly, in the silence, he said, but you know, in that building, I don't know if you should have instruments. I think that only the human voice is pure enough to be, sung, to be performed in that building. And everybody sighed relief. My gosh, he somehow figured this out himself. So we were stunned, and he said, I will write vocal music that can be sung in that building. And as a result of that, Indian vocal music, as, as we learned after that, is not sung unaccompanied. It's always sung with accompaniment. He had originally said, well, we can't sing without some form of accompaniment. We don't use choirs in India. And I proposed to him that we could use a choir to be the accompaniment, like one choir would by singing syllables and oohs and ahs and rhythmic figures, could be like an orchestra, but a human orchestra, and then the other choir could sing the melodies. And he loved this idea, and so we started working together. And so I flew to India, I believe, like six times. And one time I spent several weeks with him in his, what they call an ashram. It's a house of learning. It's like, almost like a little university that they run where he was a teacher. And he taught me about Indian music, because he likes to do that. He likes to teach Westerners about Indian music. I learned enough, and then I arranged the choral pieces so that they could be sung completely unaccompanied in the temple. And we got a big choir of Indian singers from the Conservatory of New Delhi. That They were very fine, educated singers to sing the Indian melodies, and we got a, a Baha'i choir of singers from all over the world to do the rest. I really developed a choral style in which a melody could be accompanied by other voices. And some recordings of mine that were done soon after that, a song like Dastan Begir, Adabaha from Songs of the Ancient Beauty, or Alahoma, or the a cappella version of O Baha'u'llah that I wrote later, all of those are accompanied by a choir alone, and the choir acts both as the orchestra in some parts and as the choir in other parts. That style developed from my working with Ravi Shankar in which I realized that a choir can be used as both an accompanying orchestra and and a choir itself and a solo. I learned that from working with Ravi Shankar. What are you doing today, Tom? Right now, believe it or not, coincidentally, because we were just talking about this, is that I am re- orchestrating, when I say orchestrating, only for the human voice, all nine pieces that Ravi Shankar wrote in 1986, and preparing them for a new recording, which I'm going to have released sometime early in 2010. And then we will perform those in the concert halls of India, where we've already scheduled a concert in the National Center for Performing Arts in in Mumbai, which is like the Carnegie Hall of India, the main hall, and we're going to premiere those pieces. So we want to uh, re-perform all of the pieces, and of the nine that uh, Ravi Shankar wrote, only one or two are currently known today. They're difficult to sing and perform, but they're all spectacularly beautiful. So I'm working on uh, 
both recording and arranging that music again, even though I did arrange them for, in 1986, I'm redoing all of that to bring it up to uh, the standard that I think they deserve, and also preparing for a tour to India in 2010, which means that we're you know, accepting auditions from singers or applications from singers to join and making the plans. So we're working very much on both the music and the practical aspects of the tour to India, which will take place in June of 2010. Over and above that, I'm also working on some Baha'i compositions. But as far as my work in the faith, the last year I've been more working on research, and the research has not been in the area of music, although it was inspired by my understanding of music. And I've been working on the research of what I call the science of spirituality, and I've been giving uh, talks on this subject at various summer schools, the Tennessee Baha'i School, the Mississippi Baha'i School, the Florida Baha'i School, and so on. They're talks uh, on looking at spirituality from a much more scientific perspective. And I kind of feel that my work in music has lent me a perspective on this, because music is both an art and a science. And there's always been a tremendous correlation between music and science. Some people don't know this, but if you take a list of most great scientists, or particularly physicists, for example, the BBC recently published a list of what they said are the top ten greatest physicists in history of the world. You know, and there's Einstein and Heisenberg and Maxwell and, you know, various you know, people on that list. If you look at that list, seven of the ten seven of the ten greatest physicists of all time were all professional-level musicians. This has often been commented on. You know, Einstein was a musician, Heisenberg was a musician, you know, and so on. But if you look at their own writings, what they said about music, and they say that music has given them an insight and a way in which they, they perceive and view things that was enorm- enormously beneficial in their coming up with scientific theories, And in the Baha'i faith, we're told that science and religion are like two wings of a bird, and that only when science and religion are brought into harmony can civilization flourish. And I believe that this means not only that science and scientists need to become more religious, which might be what some people think, that, oh, science needs to get religion. No, I think the other is, is just as true, that our religion needs to become more scientific and that spirituality needs to be studied and understood in a more systematic and rigorous way. And so I've been devoting a lot of attention, and I'm actually, believe it or not, writing a book on this subject as we speak. So my uh, interest has turned somewhat to spirituality and trying to develop you know, a better understanding of spirituality. And I believe all of that has come from my work in music, particularly my deep love of Indian music, because Indian music is really all about the science of spirituality. The Indians believe that there are two worlds. There's the physical world and the spiritual world. And they believe that music is the door between those two worlds, that through the purity of tone and the beauty of music, you can go through that door. They have a long culture, several thousand years longer than us, in which they have viewed music as part of the science of spirituality. And so I've been, you know, attracted to that for some time. So now I've started to put my thoughts in writing and in lectures. And so it's, it's another area of my life that is fascinating to me. Well, Tom, we've run out of time, and I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. Okay, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tom Price, a music composer, arranger, and producer. I'm closing the program with an excerpt from one of Tom's compositions called Dastam Bagir Abdu'l-Baha, which in Persian means Hold My Hand, Abdu'l-Baha. This was recorded from the 1992 Baha'i World Congress at the Jacob Javits Center in New York City. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time. 
on a Baha'i perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.